Are you a Christian here this morning? Christians, raise your hands. Okay. You are a supernatural being. You're supernatural. You have entered into life out of death, and you have become a child of God. You are supernatural. You live in an existence above and beyond the things that we see, we hear, we taste, we touch. You are supernatural. Now, you may not think of yourself as supernatural here this morning. You may say, Greg, you don't know the pains that my body gives to me. You don't know the struggles that my checkbook is having. The fact remains, you are supernatural. And you have the Creator Spirit residing within you. And all of the the blessings that Christ possesses, you possess as a Christian. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, that, what I am saying to you, is amazing. It's extraordinary that we can, as human beings, walk into this building gather together to worship God and understand that without a doubt, we are supernatural. That we have a reality to our existence that far ascends beyond what life outside of Christ is. Why is that? Why is that? It's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we have been looking at. The fact that God, from before the foundation of the world, intended that He would call out of darkness into the light a people for His very own possession. The Bible describes it in different ways. It says we're adopted children. It says we've been born again. It says that we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But regardless of how you describe it, the fact remains, we are supernatural. I want to drive that home. And we are supernatural because of what I am about to read to you. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, here it is. This is what makes you supernatural. Faith in this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life. But He experienced all 
of the difficulties, all of the hardships, all of the temptations that a physical life demands. He hungered. He thirsted. He was wearied. He wept. But he was without sin. And without sin, he should have never died. Because the wages of sin is death, the Bible teaches us. So all of us die because all of us have sinned. But Jesus had not sinned. Jesus was God in the flesh, perfect, without sin. So what happened on the cross that caused Jesus to die? Jesus willingly submitted himself to the Father's will. And the Father's will was that there would be an innocent and a perfect sacrifice for the sin of mankind. Blood shed to remove sin. You see, from the very beginning, back to the garden with Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve had sinned, God slew an animal to create loincloths to cover Adam and Eve's sin. From that time forward, blood sacrifice was required. The life of an innocent being was required to cover the sin of man. And in the Mosaic Law, the sacrificial system was instituted through which blood sacrifice was of necessity required in order for the people to have their sin covered. But year to year, every year, the high priest had to sacrifice another animal in order to cover the sins of the people. Because these sacrifices were only foreshadowing or looking towards the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God's own Son who would come to this world. So Jesus came to die. Even though he never should have died, he came to die. Because when he went to the cross, he became sin for you and for me. He took my sin upon himself at the cross. He took upon himself your sin at the cross. Now, sometimes we minimize that and we think of our little white lies, and we think of the things that we could have done that we didn't do or should have done. But the reality is, people, our sin is grievous. Our sin caused the death of God's own Son. He willingly took it upon Himself. And when He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? It was because He was carrying my sin upon himself. God had, in some kind of dramatic fashion that only God understands, God the Father turned his face from God the Son, and God the Son carried the sin of the world. But ultimately, ultimately, Jesus there on the cross said, it is finished. And when he cried out, it is finished, what was finished? What had been completed? What had been finalized? 
the payment for our sin. The full payment, I'm going to go over this in just a moment. The full payment for our sin had been finalized there on the cross. And at that point, Jesus said, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Now, I want to read something to you. The death of Jesus Christ was absolutely unique. There were other Jewish men who were crucified during this time, but the death of Jesus Christ was absolutely unique because it was the death of God. That's only three words, but that's pretty heady. The death of God. Listen to what the physical aspects of crucifixion were that Jesus experienced. This was written by a medical doctor. The cross is placed on the ground and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist and he drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up into the arms, exploding into the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them into deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down. Then another agony begins, a deep, crushing pain within the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. And finally, he can allow his body to die. All this, the Bible records with the simple words, and they crucified him. Now, if this was just any man on the cross suffering this for us, we would be impressed. We would be thankful. But this my friends, is God who experienced this for me and for you.
But that's not even the worst part. The worst part is when he cries out for the first time from eternity past through eternity forward, for the first and only time, God the Son is separated from God the Father. What wondrous love. Because he did it for me. Listen to what the death of Jesus Christ was, what it accomplished for us. First, it was substitutionary. As I said, he died for me. It says in Romans 5, 6, while we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So he took my place. If he had not done that, surely I would have experienced an eternal and an excruciating death instead. His death was effective. As I said earlier, he paid the full price. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or literally the payment for our sins. His death was an example to us. It says in Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, yet he made himself of no reputation taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His death was eternal. As I said, the blood of bulls and goats could only cover sin, but the blood of Jesus Christ forever removed it. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come with a greater and a more perfect tabernacle, to the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He did not come with the blood of bulls and of goats, but he came with his own blood, and he entered the most holy place once for all, and having done so, obtained eternal redemption. So we never have to worry ever again about God's love, about sin not being paid for. It is finished. His sacrifice was reconciling. We were enemies of God. But the Bible says that by him, that is Jesus Christ, he has reconciled all things to himself, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, and has made peace through the blood of his cross. His death was redeeming. That is to say we were slaves of sin. You and I had no choice but to sin. We were born with a sin nature, and we sinned by choice. We were slaves in the slave market of sin. But the Bible says this, knowing you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold as you would have been in the Roman slave market from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but rather with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but has been manifest in these last times for you. We are no longer slaves to sin because we have been redeemed from that. And finally, the message of the cross, the death of Jesus Christ, is foolishness to those who don't believe. 
Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So the death of Jesus Christ accomplished all of these things for us. You and I have become, as I said, supernatural because of what he did for us removing our sin, redeeming us from sin, creating in us new hearts that are no longer prone to sin. That is a wonderful gift, an amazing blessing. But with it comes challenge. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. This this comes right after Peter has told Jesus, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. Jesus has begun to explain to them he's going to the cross. And Peter says, no, Lord, forbid it. How should it be that you should go to the cross? And Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. You're mindful of the things of man, not the things of God. But then listen to this. This is what comes with the cross. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. For what good is it if someone were to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can one give in exchange for this soul? Jesus, in saying this to his disciples, was unequivocal. The disciples would have absolutely understood what he was talking about. The cross meant one thing to a first century Jew. It meant one thing, death. When Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross, they understood that he meant you must carry the cross to your death and give up your life in order to find it. You see, as Christians, when we become disciples, we are baptized into his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's why we baptize people. It's symbolic of a spiritual reality that has occurred. We have been baptized with him into his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but the life I now live in the body, I live by the grace and the love of the Son of God who gave himself for me. So Jesus says we must take up our cross. We must die to ourselves. Now when I say self, what I am talking about is that part of our old nature that still remains with us, that old sin nature that we all still struggle with. It says in, in, in Ephesians that we are to put off the old man. Put it to death. Put it in the grave. And put on Christ. So each and every day, we must take up our cross and die to ourselves. Die to that old sin nature. Because Christ has given us the power through his shed 
blood to do exactly that. We have a choice. For the first time in our existence, with faith in God through Christ, we have the power, as I said, to step out of the slave market of sin and step into the newness of life. That's what the cross has done for us. We walk by faith. We die each and every day. This life as a Christian, literally, according to this scripture I just read to you, is a death march. It's a death march. We have our cross over our shoulder each and every day. We take that cross to remind us that when we are tempted to sin, when Satan tries to deceive us and tell us that we are not supernatural, that we are not children of God, that we have not ascended into heaven with them and seated with him in the heavenly places, we can say, no, I am crucified with Christ. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is what the cross is all about. It's about what Jesus did for us. And it's about our identification with that action and how that transforms our lives. It's so discouraging for me to hear people who continue to struggle with sin, who continue to allow sin to have ascendancy in their life when Christ has done everything possible and necessary to give us the victory. Which takes me to the next part of this glorious gospel. We were buried with him. It says there in 1 Corinthians 15. That is to say, our old man, that old nature, has literally been put in the grave. The only power the old person has over you, the only power your flesh has over you is the power that you give to it. The power that you allow Satan through deception to gain. Because the reality is your old person, that sin nature, is in the grave. Hallelujah! You do not have to live under the circumstances as a Christian. Because not only is your old nature in the grave, but he has made you a new creation in Christ. All of the old things have passed away. We are made new. This is the supernatural part, people. You are a new creation, a new creature in Christ. You have been given through the resurrection a new power, the Holy Spirit as a down payment within you. I'm looking out at a congregation of people who are empowered to live a godly, dynamic, Christ-honoring life because of the gospel. The resurrection is an amazing thing. The resurrection is something that obviously occurred in the past with Jesus Christ. But through our identification with what occurred in the past, we have the power of the resurrection now in our lives. It's something the theologians called realized eschatology. In other words, 
You can walk in the power of the resurrection. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul understood that that power was available to him. He said, the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in me. In Romans chapter 8, verse 10. The resurrection is past, it is present, and it is yet future. Listen to this. This is the hope of the resurrection. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise. And whenever... This is a passage of Scripture that I often use at funerals because we grieve, don't we, when people that we love pass away. Death is a terrible thing. When people that we love die. But for that matter, when people that we don't love die, it's a terrible thing because someone else loves them, even if we don't. This is what Jesus came to, to conquer, to overcome. And people grieve for the lost loved ones. But listen to what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will ever be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. So the resurrection is something yet future. The dead in Christ will get new bodies. Their mortality will put on immortality. Their corruption will put on incorruption. Those of us who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord, our bodies will be translated. It's something called the rapture. When in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we are changed and we are taken into his presence forever and ever. That's the resurrection. So it's past, it's present, and it's future. There's a reality to it, there's a hope within it, and there is an experience of the resurrection. So how do we know that we have been infused with resurrection power? Listen to this. Paul, and I'll close with this, Rome, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 3. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Now, Paul is writing this to the Colossians who are still alive, and he is telling them, you've been raised with Christ. So again, realized eschatology. The experience is now. He says, you have been raised with Christ. And because of that, you are to do these things. First, you are to set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So the first evidence that you're walking in a resurrected life is that your focus is not on what's happening all around you. Not that you're unaware of it, but that's not what you're concerned with. That is not what you become anxious about. You have an absolute peace as you look up to heaven and understand, I've been risen with Christ. I'm seated in the heavenly places with him. I'm a possessor of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Set your minds on things above. People often say he's so heavenly minded that he's of no earthly good. I don't believe that's true, and I don't believe this scripture supports that. I think when we focus on heaven and we focus upon who we are in Christ, we transform this world around us. We go about the Father's business of redeeming culture, redeeming people when we know where we're headed. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we have a new nature. Verse 5, it says, put to death, and I've talked about this a little bit, put to death those things that belonged to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and he goes on, and there's a long litany of things that once possessed us, but no longer. Put those things to death. We have a new nature. He says in verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another if any has grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We are supernatural. And then in verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach one another and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing unto God with gratitude in your hearts. The third evidence that you're walking in the power of the resurrection is the word of God permeates all that you do, your life, your fellowship, your worship. You go to this book to communicate your heart. And then finally, and most importantly, verse 17. Whatever you do, if you're risen, Since you've been raised with Christ, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So your life is founded in Jesus Christ. There's nothing about your life that doesn't emanate from your relationship with him because the gospel says you've been baptized into his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You and me are supernatural. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have in the resurrection, the reality of your death. I I read that passage that described crucifixion, and I can't imagine, Jesus, the pain that you suffered on my behalf. But it was because of love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so we do believe the gospel. We hold firmly to it and we establish our lives upon it. In Jesus' name, amen.